If you've got a Bible, we're on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Uh, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The wonder of being human and Sophie Cat. Uh, I don't know how the earthquake and the tsunami in Japan uh, affected you. Uh, I, I found myself um, thanking God and worshipping for the wonder of actually being human. And uh, we are so confident, aren't we, and strident one day, and yet so frail and, and frightened uh, the next. We, as a people group, uh, we move from being inst- indestructible uh, to being broken almost in a moment. I guess, you know, the day before uh, in Japan, most of those people would have had quite an indestructible view of their, their lives, and then they find themselves broken. We seem to have an astonishing capacity to see, or see and hear and feel, and we do that on all things. If you went and asked people uh, what they felt about Japan, they would give you their opinion. If you went and asked them about celebrity gossip, they would give you your, their opinion. We all have an opinion on everything. You've only got to go to any pub or anything or any group of people and there will be dozens of people that will talk to you about all sorts of different things and form judgments about it all. We feel profound emotions of love and then hate and joy and discouragement and wonder and and hope and gratitude. We're able to plan whether we actually fulfill all their plans, Uh, I don't know. I guess in Japan, the day before, there would have been dozens of people planning all sorts of things that would have never come to fruition, but they would have been good, energetic, great plans. We have Sam and Hilary in front of us planning a wedding. It's just a question, you know, how many people were planning a wedding? Same thing, same emotions, same money, perhaps... Might have been a bit more, but it's in Japan. But, but they, were, they were there planning their different things. We, and yet I think the best of it all is to find out that we, as human beings, were, were known, were, were made to know and to serve uh, the greatest being in the universe, our maker, our saviour, our, our, our God. And I just was just thinking about how many in that massive tragedy, did not have the peace of God that I have. And it was one of those two rare moments that I stopped. I saw eternity, and for a moment, I just thought, Nigel, this gospel is not about me. It's about you. And sometimes I'm so consumed with me, I forget that actually there is about other people as well. I get so consumed. I saw eternity and thought, no, the gospel. One of the, the other things is that I, we have a cat. And one of the benefits of having a cat 
is an increased awareness that I actually am not like the cat. You may find that difficult, but actually, I, I've not, I don't know whether you've ever realized this, that humans become more like their animals and actually begin to think that those animals are human in themselves. Uh, I am not a cat. Um, but I do look at our cat, and for a moment, I actually think that she's a kind cat, that she's forgiving. I, I find her attitude towards me humble. She's extremely patient that she lives with me and uh, puts up with me. I find her loving, uh, warm, gentle, happy, and at peace generally with the world. And then I have to realize that actually she is a cat. And I don't want to say anything this week, but because one member of our people has suggested that we, we scrap Facebook and have pet book, I have seen that. So this is for you, but I don't want to embarrass you. But the person that screamed, you know who you are, that this is a cat. She does not prize anything because of its true worth, actually, uh, in its relation to, to God. She doesn't know where she came from. She actually came from Blithgwyn. She doesn't know that. She doesn't have on a, you know, that sort of thing. She doesn't know that at all. Uh, she doesn't reflect on her identity when there's a huge disaster. She doesn't think about why she's here, and she doesn't know where she's going. She gives me actually affection, whether I like this or not, and I have to come to terms with this. She gives me affection for one reason only, and one reason at all, I feed her. And this is hard for me, because actually I do think that Sophie Cat is human. Well, I treat her as a human, and it's been difficult for me as I've looked out at the earthquake to realize that, you know, that there is a difference here. I've realized that she rubs my leg not because of sacrificial love and affection for me, but because she actually wants what I'm preparing with Callie for our dinner this evening. And I'm fooled, like you are fooled because you are quiet by thinking that your animal is also human. And don't celebrities wind you up when they make them that way, but I just do. I do know this, she's a wonder, uh, I do like her, um, and... But I do also know that she's not a human being created in the image of God. And as I think about her, I'm actually therefore amazed at my own humanity and the incredible wonder of the humanity that God has placed me amongst. What a privilege to live amongst human beings. What a privilege. What a wonderful privilege it is to be human being. To be alive as a human being means actually living with some incredible and indescribable mysteries. I think you can find that out, can't you, just in the week ago in, in Japan. Mysteries at every turn that are unexplainable. And to have in front of us, well, for some of us, uh, a destiny of spectacular glory or actually an inexpressible horror, is sometimes a weight that can either press down on you with fear and trembling. It can cause you to burst uh, into joy uh, and worship uh, and just be full of glory. Phil Harmon was away 
uh, the other week, and he was uh, saying that he had a, a way an evangelist summit, such things that New Frontiers do. It means, I don't know what it means, but it sounds good. And he was saying that they invited a guy to speak for a whole session on the subject of hell. And then Phil Hartman said this to me. It was surprising that he said that we didn't come out the other side and worship God. And for a moment, I just thought, what? He must have gone about the smell of sulfur and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Because, you know, I've heard Greg Aslan before and talked about all this sort of stuff. And Phil Harmon's wonder was to say, I am saved from this hell, I'm guessing. Therefore, I need to worship that I am. But actually, in life itself, people live with the fact that they don't think about hell very much. In fact, they don't think, you say they don't think about God, they think about hell much less. They can be blasé about it. They can love it, hate it, forget it. But part of the wonder of being human being, and particularly being Christian, is that you have in front of you an eternal destiny. And for some of you, it will be spectacular glory. And for others, it will be inexpressible horror. And a lot of that will depend in large measure, to whether you know the answer to some basic human questions. Who are you? Let's just clear this up. You're not Sophie Cat. Who are you? How did you get that identity? What are you here for? It's interesting that people lose sleep over those things. Sophie Cat does not lose sleep over those things. But human beings do. And only human beings actually seek these questions. And not often do we actually find the answers in a short text. But in ours, we do. Who am I? How did I get this identity? What's it for? Why am I here? So let's take a deep breath and have a look about what our little text actually says about these things. It actually answers all those questions. So who are you? I want you to keep in mind that Peter is identifying Christians when he's, t- when he's re- talking about this text. This text actually is not for you if you are not a Christian. My advice is, by the time that I've stopped speaking, is that you repent, put your faith in Jesus, so that these things are yours. That's my advice and my counsel to you. This is, if you are a Christian... This is how you get your identity as a Christian. And he gives us five ways of describing our identity. Here they are. Here's the first one. You are a chosen race. Verse 9. Now I know that people will argue theologically that these are about an individual group. You're a chosen race, therefore it's talking about group. I want to just be naughty and take these from an individual perspective. And the reason that I want to do that is that um, I I want to try and see whether we can get under a bit of skin this morning in that way. Because I know this is a corporate identity. I know he's talking about the church. But actually, the the, uh, implication is individual because this is race and it's not racial. The chosen race, therefore, is not black. The chosen race is not white. The chosen race is not red or yellow or brown. The chosen race does not depend on where you live. 
a chosen race. He's actually a new peoples from all the peoples of the earth. All colors, all cultures. In fact, when you become a Christian, you actually become a stranger and an alien in this land. That's what the Bible tells us. Verse 11 tells us that. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. And we need to be defined not by the world that we we live in, not by its places or its cultures, but by the God in whom we serve. Suddenly, colour is out here. The birthplace is out here. In fact, it's irrelevant, really, that I was born into a little town called Willenhall, just outside of Wolverhampton. It's great that I can tell you that. But suddenly, when I became a Christian at the age of 14, I left, as it were, that world and entered into a new race. I left it. I want to ask you, what gives you your identity? Does your white colour and your white culture give you your identity? Or does your chosenness give you your identity? It's interesting, very early on when the Brighton Conference was being, um, was being put together and we were then thinking about, well, what sort of people would come from all sorts of nations? There were lots of discussions over the things that we should do. So things like, should we talk about uh, our consumer nation? Should we talk about uh, recycling and, and green issues? And it's interesting. Uh, and I can remember being in a meeting very early on with Terry Virgo saying, I want to be able to preach from the Brighton Conference things that will go through in every nation of the world. And it's true, he said, because you know, if you look at it, I have recycling bins. If I have so many, I don't know whether you're like me, I do not know what to do with them. And I'm always putting the wrong flipping thing out, the wrong time, wrong colour and all that sort of stuff. And sometimes they come at 7.30 in the morning, sometimes at 3 in the afternoon, and I can't work out recycling. But actually, if you lived in Mexico on a tip and you were a child, recycling would not be your issue. And it's really interesting that we have, we have an age that's come up and said, I want to be able to preach Jesus through my culture. And actually, Jesus affects culture. We should not be divined by our culture. That's why I admire Terry. So now we're going to preach things that anybody can come into this and feed from. Christians are not a white race. They're a chosen race. Christians are not a black race. They're a chosen race. Yes, there are black chosen and there are white chosen and there are yellow chosen and there are red chosen. We're out of all the races of the world, we become chosen. Not on the basis that I belong, that I am African or Welsh, but on the basis of God extended his grace to me and brought me into a new group of people. That is the wonder of it all. I've been plucked out of this group. That's why it's an amazing phrase and is individually crucial for you. You are part of a chosen race. Let me say that to you again. (laughs) If you feel a bit miserable this morning, let me just tell you, you are part of a chosen race. God has chosen you. He's put together a magnificent group of all peoples, all colours throughout history and placed them together and placed you at the centre of it. So your first identity is that you are a chosen person. God chose you. 
not because of anything of your background or for any other qualification. God chose you. Who am I? I'm chosen. (laughs) I don't know why. It was nothing in my value at all. I didn't earn it. I didn't merit it. I didn't meet its conditions. It happened before I was born. Why don't you just stand in awe of the fact and make sure that the things that we do are not cultural first. Make sure that we do that. (coughs) Secondly, I've just changed it. You are pitied. Verse 10, you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why am I using the word pitied? Because the word uh, for mercy in the Greek here is a verb, and it's the closest that we have to the word in English. What we're actually received is that we are mercied, if you could have such a word. We are mercied. And so pity is not a bad translation. When God chose you, he then saw us in our sin, he saw us in our guilt, he saw us in our condemnation, and he pitied us. That's the wonderful thing. He saw everything that we were like, and he took pity on us. Isn't that great? It is just extraordinary in the fact. I don't know whether you've ever done this. I I have to admit that I have failed several times in this particular exercise. Because every now and again, we get a little tiny bird that comes and it tries to to fly through our windows. I don't know whether any of you has ever had that. And right from our children, right from when they were young, you have to then go and get a shoebox, put the bird in, try and feed it with a pipette thing, make some grass and put it in and carry it around. And unfortunately, what happens is that you find that the, the poor old sad old bird does not live. Or we've never had a bird that lived. It always hits the windows too hard. And you're all looking at me thinking, this has never happened to me. Because he has, I know it has. This is, and when, when our kids and I hit that, I don't know whether you're like me, but as soon as he goes, bump, I'm out there. And within seconds, the box is out there, and we're picking up the bird, and we've got it on its side, and, uh, and you know, we, we put a hanky over it, and all that stuff, keep it warm, and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. All those actions are pitied. They are, they are pitied actions. They are because we feel pity. Now, I want you to know that before the foundation of the world, when you bumped your head against the window of life in sin and in guilt and in shame and in all that sort of stuff, that in heaven there was somebody that felt for you. This isn't just, well, God extended mercy. No, God felt for you. He, in his heart, he was feeling you. Isn't that wonderful? He was feeling you. He was moved because of you. It affected him deeply. It affected him enough to pity you. Isn't that wonderful? I just think, I, I am, you are moved. By, God is moved because of you. That is just wonderful to know. I am chosen. I am pitied. You could say, I am graced. I am loved. God did not choose me and suddenly stand aloof. No, he didn't. He felt, he drew near to me. When I hit the window, he came out, as it were. I know that's the wrong way because it's a bit of a cross between all, but you know what I mean when I'm saying, when I'm saying that. I am a mercied person and I don't get my identity from anything else but this. I am firstly a chosen person 
And I am a person whose God has moved towards in heaven. These are my identities. I don't understand that, but I know this. God was moved because of me. And I think, wow, I find it difficult to move you. So I don't. <laughs> Thirdly, you are God's possession. Verse 9, you are a people of God's own possession. Verse 10, once you were a people, but now, uh, once you were, sorry, you were God's own possession, once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. You're chosen, pitied, and the effect of this is that God takes you uh, for his own. Now, let's just put this into uh, just context here. God owns everything. Uh, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Everything is God's. So in one sense, we understand that. But this is sort of saying special ownership. It's the best way that we can do this. It's like saying, I, I don't know whether you were like me when you were little, but my toys when I was little were dinky toys. They were made of tin and painted like this, just showing my age. That's how they were. They were dinkies. I liked dinky toys. And I had some toys that I would play with my friends with. But I had some t- dinky toys that if David Joyce came round, they were not coming out. They were my special dinky toys. They were not the ones that went in the big box with all the other toys. They were the ones that went in their own individual box. And when David Joyce was not there, they came out. So the the earth is the Lord and everything is it. And then there's you, the chosen ones, the pitied ones. You are the ones in the special dinky box that he takes out to play with. That's how it works. You're not in just the big box. You're the ones... You were set aside. That's the difference between... You're the special ones. That is extraordinary. I hope you're with me with this. You can see this. It says, doesn't it? It says, you are God's inheritance. You are God's inheritance. You are the ones that he wishes to spend eternity with. (laughs) Just imagine that. Just before the founder, who shall I spend eternity with? I know Rupert Leslie. <laughs> you just, you don't know, just think, well, I wouldn't. <laughs> but you think before the phone that God says, <laughs> God says, Rupert, I will be their God and they will be my people. They will be my possession. Actually, in eternity, God says, I look around the earth and I want to choose a people so that they can be with me in eternity and you are in it. (laughs) What? I'm not allowed to do toilet jokes anymore, but doesn't it affect you? (laughs) Callie's not here, I can do one. (laughs) But don't you think that? Don't you think that you you were chosen... You're pitied. You are God's. You are the ones that He has chosen to walk amongst and reveal more about Himself for all eternity. To have a personal relationship with eternity, you are. You have become His possession. That's just mad. I I was went away last weekend for for um, it was Callie's birthday. 21 and mm bit. So we went away. 
And what I found absolutely wonderful, and I have to admit, was being able to spend so much time with my wife. Because I, I don't know whether you like, you know, we come in, we go out, and all that sort of stuff. And I just, I just thought, uh, we, uh, no, we won't go into those bits, but we could go to these bits. We could walk together, we could talk together, we could eat together, we could absolutely, for the whole weekend. And when I came back, it, it, Monday morning was just mad. Because what had happened is that, you know, everything else had built up, and suddenly I've got to go. And actually, I felt a little bit of resentment that I could not... She went to work, and I was like... So I was in a mood in the morning, just like... And God... And you just think... So, and so by the time she came home, I was a little grumpy. And so we had a leadership team in the, meet, in the evening, so I was grumpy with them. And I thought, what's up with him? It's because I don't have this. And, this is the, and God says, God says to you, I will choose to spend an unbroken, unbroken quality relationship with you forever because I want to be with you. You are my chosen one to spend eternity with. But not just, well, I'll just be around. No, I want to walk with you, eat with you, talk with you, share everything with you. I want you to know all that there is about me together forever. What a chosen thing that is to do that. What a privilege that God should do that. Fourthly, you are holy. Verse 9, you are a holy nation. You've been chosen and pitied and possessed and owned by God, and therefore you are not part of this world any longer. You are what the Bible says set apart. When, when you moved out of this culture and this, right, and this way of doing things, you moved into a new, new way of living. You moved into God's way of living, in God's family, under God's way of doing things. You were set apart for God. You now exist for him. And since God is holy, therefore the best way to represent one of his family values is to be holy. (laughs) You share his character now. That's it. You're under his flag, (laughs) as it were. You're doing stuff the way that he does it, not the way that you do it. You are holy. And if you don't act in a holy way, you actually act out of character. You contradict the essence of being a Christian and who you represent. Your identity is your holiness to the Lord because you are holy. Now that's not the only way that people will recognize you because you have love for one another. Uh, All men will know that you are my disciples. But actually, it is one. It is one. And it's worth saying that sometimes what we try and do is that we try and live in this culture and be a Christian. And actually, what repentance does is that it means that you have made and I have made a U-turn from this. I'm leaving that culture. I'm now moving into this one and living as a different way. I am going to be a holy person, a holy before God, wherever I am. 
You should, in my home, be able to come and suddenly throw in the, open the door, except Monday morning when I've been away from the weekend, and if you should be able to throw it at any time, and you should be able to find somebody that represents the character of God. And I should be able to do that for you. Because now I am a holy people. I have become this. It's who I am. It's what I'm defined as. It's what defines me and it's what other people define me as. That's the th- this, is, this is my new definition. I am holy because God is holy. It's simple. And it's really interesting because it is a real battle for some people. But actually it's to do with where you are right now. Well, actually I haven't quite left this, this community now. Like that community. You may like it, but it's just wrong. <laughs> I'm now in this. So I want to ask you, you know, are you identified? Is your identity, do you identify yourself as holy? Fifthly, uh, you are a royal priest. You are a royal priesthood. So you're chosen, pitied, owned by, and holy, and a royal priest. The point is this, that you have immediate access to God. You don't need another human being, a priest, an immediate. I must not ever be the one that feeds you in that sense. You mustn't depend on me. No, you have access to God himself. God himself provided the one mediator between God and man, Jesus. And you have that access through God. And secondly, you have therefore a very active role in God's presence. You are called now to minister in the presence of God. That's what what happened when a priest uh, became a priest, as it were, that one of the things that they did is they ministered in the presence of God. And you and I now minister in the presence of God. It's our identity. All their life was priestly service. All our life is priestly service. And you are never out of God's presence. Therefore, you've got a job to do. And your life is either spiritual service or worship, Romans chapter 12, or it's out of character. We serve him now. All that I do is for him. It's our calling, our destiny, our plan. It's about serving him. It's very interesting that I, I find, um, just going around now a little bit amongst the, amongst the uh, different churches, uh, and what you find is, is this is a huge one. Because people, are so, so if you take uh, some of the churches, they say, well, well, I have a vision for 300 people. And you say, okay, well, actually, how many are you? You say, well, we're about, we're about 60 and then you sort of say to them, okay, and now how many people come to your prayer meeting and how many people are in small groups? And what, when you whittle it down, and we're the same, is that actually our lifestyle does not reflect whom we serve. What we do is that we, we sort of have, we have a block, don't we? I might offend you here, but you just have to give me forgiveness. You have a block of people, and their service is seen as this, Sunday morning. That's their Sunday morning. Don't forget this is a church and you're a royal priesthood in a church. This is writing to a church. 
So he's not talking about your individual faith. He's talking about how this works. This is Peter writing to a church. So your royal priesthood is worked out in the context of your church life. And so when we're talking to these people, we're sort of saying, well, you know, you've got this vision, that sort of stuff. When you're working down, they sort of say, well, we have a group of people that come on a Sunday. Then we have a group of extra people, and the, those, we have the people that give, give us a little bit more than that. They give me, they give, they give us sort of like Sunday morning and, and, the, and the prayer meeting. And then you have another group of people and this sort of stuff. And some of that thing that we're struggling with is that actually our whole identity now, our primary identity before anything else is that we are called to serve God as the first thing. Seek first the kingdom of God. Be a royal priest. You are called to serve God. Actually, everything else comes underneath that in life. And this is now your identity. That's what you can share. What are you called to? Because you hear this sort of people. You say, I could be called to, to drum. I feel called to lead a church. And you know, I feel called to be a doctor here. Or I, it's absolutely, absolutely, it's, it's just poppycock. It's rubbish. Because those are not callings. They're not what God predestines. We are predestined to serve him. That's our predestiny. That's the thing that we're called to do first. It's what we are here for. It's what you are here for. Your identity leads to your destiny. When you can say, I'm here to serve God 100%, it will lead you to your destiny. We minister as priests all day. We shouldn't ration the presence of God. We shouldn't ration the people of God. Well, I just ration them. No, we ration actually everything else. We don't ration God. So royal priesthood, how did you get this identity? It's obvious, hopefully. We got identity from God. In fact, our identity is our relation to God. If you think about it, uh, our identity was given, chosen by God, pitied by God, possessed by God, set apart by God, invested as royal priesthood by God. You got it all by God. That's how we got it. Peter said in his summary uh, of the statement at the end of verse 9, he refers to it like this, him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's about him. Everything that we are about is about what he has given to us. It's, it's all to do with him. In fact, it's all about God, really. It's what he has done. It's not what I have achieved. So, oh, there. So the question is, having tried to answer that one, uh, our identity and purpose. I just want to hit this before I move on. And uh, I'll probably hit this and run home because <laughs> I'm insecure. Uh, there's a lot of discussion today about self-identity or self-esteem. And I've been amazed at the, the rise of, of the subject of it. How do you view yourself? Is it, an, is it actually an important question? And, and what I hope you hear this morning is that the biblical angle on this question is that, is that Christian selfhood is not defined in terms of who we are and what we think about ourselves. <coughs> it's defined in terms of what God has done and what he thinks about ourselves and our relationship with him. In other words, 
As a Christian, you can't talk about your identity without talking about what he has done. It's all linked back to him. He has done the work. Where am I going with this? The biblical understanding of human and self-identity is radically different to the world's. The world says to you that it is important that you feel good about yourself and that that is the way that we should function one to another. In fact, that you should have self-esteem. You should esteem yourself. The Bible does not ever describe self-esteem. The Bible describes God-esteem. Who am I? Who are you? You are a chosen one, a God-chosen one. You are a God-pitied one. You are a God-possessed one. You are a God-holy one. You are a God-serving one. And the language of that necessitates that we actually dismiss self and elevate God. Our identity is not and should not be an end in itself. God made us who we are that we might proclaim, as it says here, the excellencies of his ways. Now when the church tries to put a worldly spin into it and we try and work on self-esteem, I believe we'll actually get mixed up and we will distort the truth. And we will therefore have pastoral problems amongst us. The excellent ways of our God are the only free ways of our God. They come with freedom. Freedom does not come by pumping up self. Let's get this straight. It just doesn't. It comes, freedom comes with pumping up God. All the time. I don't know if you've answered yourself this question, but can it be self-esteem that's wrong with people? Would more self-esteem solve the world's problems? Does God want you to feel good about yourself? They're good questions. Well, according to Ephesians 1... What God wants me to know is that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. (laughs) He wants me to know that I walked in disobedience. He wants me to know that I, by nature, was an enemy of God. And actually, that's the first line of salvation, that I know that. And Romans tells me that he wants me to know that I have always fallen short of the glory of God. This is my self-identity. This is what I look at and think. This is me. And I want to ask you that question. Is that how you have viewed you? Is that how you have viewed you? Then he moves it on in Ephesians chapter 2 and he tells me, says, even though that is true about you, (laughs) I am able to save you from that by grace. And that is his workmanship, to be able to do that. What is the purpose of that? That makes salvation so much more excellent. It makes it a salvation of grace and not of works. 
It makes your position before God so remarkable. It makes it so much more worshipful to know that you are and I am in this position and yet God would put his love upon me. It's more than just knowing who we are. He has given us our unique identity in order that we might point back towards him. It is always about him. God made us so that we could make known who he was. Our identity of uniqueness is so that we can be so unique that our message is unique. So the self-esteem message does not work to the world because what you're doing is, is taking, the, you're taking a message that they already want to do anyway. We take a different message. Somebody comes up to you and says, you know, what we need to do is pump ourselves up. You say, no, this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. This is why the cross is so remarkable. This is why the incarnation is remarkable. This is why being chosen and redeemed is so remarkable. I am who I am by the grace of God, which we'll come to. Now, we can make his identity known in, a, in all sorts of different ways. But I just, want to do, I just want to finish it by saying two things. One is our response to this, and the other one is our foundation. So firstly then, our response. What do you do to the fact that you are a chosen people? What do you do to the fact that you are a royal priesthood? What do you do that God thinks like this about you? They're extraordinary. What, what do you think? The Bible tells us here in that passage that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Therefore, what is Peter saying? The reason that you are chosen, the reason that you are a royal priesthood, the reason that you are holy, the reason that you are owned by God is that it is about proclaiming. We exist to proclaim. That's why we're here. That's why God called you. God did not call you to live in a Christian closet. He called you to proclaim. He said, here, have this wonderful salvation. Be understood in these particular ways so that it can get in your being so that you might proclaim. The product, the aim of everything that you are and I am is to proclaim. We are to be a proclaim. Excuse you, that's what we do. Excuse me, who are you? I'm Nigel. Would you like to know that I am chosen? Pardon? Would you like to know that I am a royal? We are proclaimers of this wonderful thing. That's why we're not proclaimers of self-esteem, by the way. We're proclaimers of God. We're proclaiming Him. The language that is in that passage is drawn from Isaiah. Isaiah 43, verse 20 and 21. The wild beasts will honour me, the jackals and the ostriches. I love that. <laughs> I just would love to see an ostrich honouring God, wouldn't you? Okay, you don't think, I just think that's all right. You think about it when you get home. I know, you, I know that you could do a skit on how I worship, but ask yourself this question. What would an ostrich like worship like if it was sitting right next to you right now? You still haven't got it. Okay. I, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That they might declare my praise. 
All that I have given you is for declaring. All that I have given you is proclaiming. Now, let's deal with this theologically for a second. Let's just move. Theologians argue that this is worship. Okay? They say, ah, what we need to do is just worship and the Lord will save millions. That will be that it is. And that's what they say here. These two verses are pro- proclaiming. So we just shout, oh, I'm so great. I'm a chosen person. Thank you, Lord. And all that sort of stuff. We all do it together. We go, oh, Rupert, I'm so chosen. We do all that sort of stuff. We all do it in our little sort of cupboard. And that's what theologians say. They say, this is what this is about. This is about it. Ask yourself this question. If it was just about proclaiming to us, and if it was just about declaring to us, what would happen, therefore, without the proclamation of the gospel that Paul talked about? Because if, if people don't hear, they are not saved. And it is also a reference to the hyper-Calvinism that creeps into the church because the church downright actually do not want to proclaim underneath it. The issue really underneath it is this thing that the church does not want to proclaim. The church does not. And we have to face up to the facts with this. We have to go, look, I don't like proclaiming. I don't like declaring. Instead of being theologically twisted about it, why don't we just be honest and say, I struggle with declaring. Because we can have some great prayer meetings then, praying for one another to proclaim and declare. I'd rather do that in all honesty than face sometimes the fudgy thing that God's going to do it anyway. It's all going to happen. It's not going to happen. Paul actually says that, didn't he? He said, if they don't hear, they won't get saved. So proclaiming is out there. What are we to proclaim therefore? What are we proclaiming? Do you just go, Denzel, I know that you are not a Christian, but I lead you to know that I am a royal priest. That's not going to help Denzel, is it? So our foundation is what we do. Let's try and work this through. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is that about? That is the foundation of what we proclaim. This is what we're proclaiming. Where do we get that from? We get it from Hosea chapter 2.23, where it's repeated here. I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy. I will, so I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to, uh, to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is Israel who had no mercy, and they were not my people, but they received mercy and became my people. Paul actually quotes this, as does Peter here, in Romans chapter 9, verse 25. Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. So Peter, Peter is saying that we need to preach, as it were, the Hosea principles. And if Jews were not a people and could be declared a people, then Gentiles who were no people could be declared a people. That's the complex thing. But what is behind all that? What is behind all that is an issue of grace. So when Peter says you were not a people, but now you are a people, it applies to both Gentiles and Israel, but it means that our message is one of grace. 
All that I enjoy, all that I have been given, all that I have done, I've received has been freely given to me by the cross in Jesus Christ. I did not deserve this, but I've, had, I've been given this. I was uh, at home on Friday, the door knocked. And I, I was greeted with three people and a bag with some tracks in. So the person that was on the door said, do you have hope? Well, <laughs> so I said, yes. And the person said, how can you do that? And I said, because I have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. I know who I'm believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which has been given to me unto that day. And he said, you cannot say that. <laughs> so I said, let me, I said, I know there are three of you here and there's, there's only me here, but I want you to know one thing. There's four of us standing here and I know this, that my, because of what Jesus has done on the cross and because he's forgiven me and because he's redeemed me and because, and I'm going on now, but that I, I know that my, my faith has secured a place for me in heaven. I know that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So we're on. So, so the guy said to me, I find your hope arrogant. I said, I find it, I find it just extraordinary. And he, and he said, so we went on like this, you know, you're arrogant and all that sort of stuff. So I then said, I asked them this question. And of with this, they left. I said, can I ask you where you're going next? And he said, to your neighbours. I thought, okay. So I said, so what you're going to do is knock on my neighbour's door and say to them, I think that I want you to know about a God that cannot give you any hope. And he, then they said, well, basically, yes. <laughs> so I said to them, what do you think if I then went on to the mine next door and followed you and said, I want to knock on your door and said, excuse me, neighbour, but, you know, we have a message here, one of no hope, and we have a message here, one of hope. Which do you want to take? Now, even if he's not going to be bothered with this for eternity, he's not going to take your message, is he? They didn't go to my neighbours. <laughs> they got in the car and drove off. Why is our message so wonderful? Paul tells us this, and it's why we're the chosen people. It's why we're the royal priesthood. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. It's why the Jews could become a people. It's why Israel could become a people. It's why we can become a people. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It is a wonderful act of grace. Grace is something that comes from God. What makes grace so wonderful is that it starts with him. It's free. It's, it's merit. It's, 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 it's not earned, whatever that song is. It's that thing. It's just rich and incredible. It's just overwhelmingly given. Overwhelmingly. I just want to read this because I don't want to get this wrong. Let me read what I wrote in conclusion. All that I have is from him and through him and to him. And Paul says in Romans 11 verse 34 and 35, we can't give a gift to him so that we could be repaid. All our gifts are his already. Therefore, his responses to us are free. He's not bound by any merit or debt that we should create from our own worth or work. He doesn't barter with us or sell to us to get what he needs. He has no needs. He does not satisfy from within. Sorry, he has no needs that he does not satisfy from within his own self-generated resources. Grace is the overflow 
(laughs) Grace is the overflow of God's free goodness and power and wisdom. Saying that God is a God of grace is a way of saying that God is God, that he is infinite, that he is all-sufficient, that he is self-existent, a complete source and a sustainer and an owner of all things and the value and all value and all worth in the universe is because of him. When all that comes towards me, it's from his grace. He says, because of his grace, you are a chosen people. He says, because of his grace, I choose to make you my royal priesthood. He chooses because of his grace, not needing you, but choosing to do it. I call you to be a holy nation. He, not needing any one of us, chooses to say, I would like you to be my people. And if he says it, then you, then you are. And the only, and you only have one releasing message to this world to proclaim. And it is the message of grace. And that's what makes our message worth proclaiming. Grace is what makes us stand out from all the other religions in the world. It isn't that, you ha- that you've got a message that is impotent. You actually have the greatest releasing message in the face of this earth. Grace. What a wonderful thing, grace. I'm just going to tell you one story while the musicians come up. I, I have no background at all about uh, Catholicism. I, I was brought up a strict Baptist, so therefore my, my understanding of Catholicism is nil. And, uh, but I have a friend called Stephen Cottrell who I went to school with. And Stephen Cottrell's family were very devout Catholics. I'm, I'm not forgotten. I'll come and hug in it when we do the dancing bit. <laughs> and what, what, what Steve Cottrell was is that Steve Cottrell uh, was devout. De- devout, is that right? And the whole family were, were, were you know, Catholics through and through. They, they, they went every day and every, every way. And I was a good strict Baptist, so I was as Catholic as he was. But I was Catholic in, a diff- different other, in other ways. I can remember sitting in the, in the pub drinking Banksy's beer over time and time again. And he used to say to me, what is your distinct message that you have that's different to, from mine? And I, I could not think of one at the time because I was a strict Baptist. So I just thought that suits did it and that sort of stuff. And, and one of the things that uh, Steve uh, found out, and he, he actually left the Catholic Church because what he did say to me as, as, a, as a later guy, we were apprenticed together, is that he went through and he was saying, I, I can never be what, what they want me to be. I, I'm just always going to fail this. I'm just never going to do. I'm never going to be this sort of person. So much to the dismay of his mum and dad, he, he left the Catholic Church and went into a life of all sorts of different things, <laughs> getting himself into trouble. 
And it was one of those diff- it was one of those things that you, you remember and you think, what is the most empowering message that we've got? The most empowering message that we've got is a message of grace. And I just want to encourage you, just say this to you. You have received freely, freely give. You have something to offer, something to say that is world changing. And and there are people out there like Steve that are looking for an answer to their life. And you have something of grace to proclaim. You have a message. What, what a great message. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. What a message that you've been given. It is not an impotent message. It is a very fertile message.